Good morning. Thank you guys for joining us as we continue the series known as In Jesus' Name, Amen. Last week, we picked up in the book of John in which we as a community began this journey in this letter three and a half years ago. Last week, we did an overview of what we had covered so far in this letter that we had done 15 of 21 chapters of the book of John, over 55 sermons over three and a half years, written all of it, all of the book of John was written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that we could believe this and have our lives transformed by this gospel message. We also began where we left off at the end of chapter 15, at the end where Jesus tells his disciples that he would send the advocate or the Father would send the advocate to glorify and testify about Jesus. So let's look at those two verses that we studied last week. We'll just read them real quick, verses 26 and 27 of John 15. Jesus says, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, Jesus says, and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. This week, we're going to look at even more of what Jesus explains to the disciples regarding this advocate who Jesus would send and the eternal difference that he would make for the disciples who would become apostles. Now, I'm going to say that a lot. The disciples who would become apostles, and even the trickle-down effect it would have on you and I today. So, in the same breath that Jesus just said what he said, here's the start of verse, chapter 16, verse 1. He says, all this I have told you so that you would not fall away. The idea of falling away from the faith has been this argument in the church for centuries, and we all know people who have claimed Jesus Christ, are excited, have christian shirts, but have not all continued with Jesus. We all agree there is a sense of endurance for the believer who makes a commitment to Jesus, but we've all known or walked with or been invested in by or worshipped with someone who on the outside looks like they have it all together, that they've been secured by Christ. The Holy Spirit has entered their lives, that they're in love with Jesus, to then unfortunately ultimately have them renounce their faith and walk away from Jesus, the church, and find some other type of fad to put their effort and attention in. We know scriptures like what the Apostle John says in another letter written to the early church in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. John's speaking of, uh, of the Antichrist, and he says, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But what is Jesus talking about here regarding the disciples not falling away? Well, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit. That's the context in which we're in, which means a few things. As we studied last week, the Holy Spirit points to Jesus Christ. He magnifies Jesus, and as we'll read later on in this passage today, he glorifies Jesus. So the Spirit comes and points to the Savior. But the Holy Spirit, as we read last week in Ephesians, is the seal of our salvation, and what is sealed by God does not come undone. And a gift from God given in grace without expectation of earning it will not be taken because your continued inability to earn it. Let me say it this way. If you didn't earn it, you can't lose it. If you didn't qualify, you can't be disqualified. But the Holy Spirit also makes sure that we understand that this spiritual battle that's, that we deal with biblically means that we, or the apostles in particular, did not go to war unarmed or ill-equipped. 
The disciples who would become the apostles would be equipped with God's presence. Even when the Son of God would leave and go back to the Father, the Spirit who seals our salvation and sanctifies, or another way of saying sanctification is grows us to look more like Jesus, would be the equipper, that He would come. He would enable the disciples to do what was impossible without God, that they would spread the news of the gospel of grace around the world. So, for just a moment, I want us to take a step outside of the book of John for a second, and I want to reverse engineer what's happening here. Does anyone appreciate that? Daniel? Okay, yeah. There was a time and place where the gospel made sense to you, perhaps, or maybe it will soon. But let's just say you heard the gospel at one point, and it clicked for you. We read in the Bible, known as the Word of God, this book that some of us have in front of us, this app that we have on some of our phones, we read in the Bible that in order for any of us to understand the magnitude and the power of the gospel, the Lord has to remove the veil for us to see who He is. He has to draw us to Himself, and when He does, the gospel goes from being something that is silly or stinky and becomes the most beautiful message and truth that we'll ever hear and experience. Paul speaks about this to the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. So this contrast for those who receive the gospel and those who do not understand it, it's pretty stark. But it's also an example of who has been given the Holy Spirit and who has not received the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that the Spirit will be sent so that they, the disciples who would become apostles, would not fall away. And then he goes on to say in verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. You'll be put out of the synagogues, Jesus says to these disciples. There was a level of prestige and importance to be included in the synagogue as a God-fearing Jew. So for many, it would be the ultimate slam to remove you from what many believed was God's house. Now, we know that the steeple is not the church, it's the people, right? But in this context, they thought that being in the synagogue was the way that they pleased God. This was the ultimate dishonor for a Jew to not be allowed in the synagogue. And yet, as Jesus points out, the religious zealot would believe that this was actually obedience to God, to remove these disciples who preached the gospel because they, like what we said earlier, their whole understanding of the gospel was a foul stench to those who were perishing. Now, I know we don't like to think us and them, unless we're talking about sports teams, right? And I know it's been told to us not to judge, But what I think Jesus is getting at to his disciples in this intimate conversation that we get to hear documented through the Holy Spirit through using the disciple John was that the apostles were in a spiritual battle, and they were going to be empowered. They were going to be equipped by the Holy Spirit. And unfortunately, when you're equipped by the Holy Spirit and you're about the gospel of Jesus Christ, there would be adversaries who would oppose this gospel of grace. And yet, I got to study with a bunch of guys this past week, and we were reminded that God not only can redeem our trials, but He can redeem everything, including people. In Acts chapter 7, and then beginning of Acts chapter 8, we see Stephen, a man who was full of the Holy Spirit, who preached the gospel to those around him in Jerusalem, and was eventually stoned for his preaching of the gospel. But in this story, and we'll study that later, in 
in this story, there's a young God-fearing man named Saul. And so I'm going to skip to Acts 7.57. Thank you. Here's what it says. At this, the people that were hearing the gospel and people Stephen was preaching to, and then there were a bunch of God-fearing Pharisees that were there. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, being Stephen. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Real quick, (laughs) we don't do this. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And then chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of their killing him. Now, this Saul was a young man who had done all the religious expectations one could have expected from a future Pharisee. But then Saul, real quick, a spoiler, Saul becomes a guy named Paul. And Paul writes two-thirds of the New Testament. And he writes to the church in Philippi and speaking about this, speaking about his religious resume prior to knowing Jesus, here's how he puts it in Philippians 3. He says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh... I have more. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But even though Saul, who would eventually be renamed with a Greek name as Paul, had been religiously exceptional, he considered it trash in comparison of knowing Christ because he is now an extreme trophy of grace that God would give him grace, even though he didn't deserve it. He writes to the young pastor named Timothy uh, in the book of 1 Timothy towards the end of Paul's life, and he says, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus." So here's why I go on that field trip about Paul. Because our God redeems. He redeems circumstances. He redeems people. And he uses the difficulties and the victories to point us back to a dependence and need for our Savior to be preeminent. I just have a real quick question for you. Can you believe that God saved you? Like, think about this for a second. Like, no one knows you better than you. Can you believe that God, who knows how many hairs are on your head or lack thereof, decided to save you? Can you believe that? If your answer is, well, of course, you might be a, redne- uh, you might be a legalist. Because what God does is he saves those who have no idea how it could even happen in the first place. Some of the most compelling stories we hear is those who God drastically transformed. But what is so wonderful and beautiful about the redemption of God is that redemption can be for the most hardened drug dealer to the most religious churchgoer. The same gospel can redeem and regenerate anyone that God in His mercy chooses to redeem. So let's read verse 2 one more time. Here's what it says. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. This seems like a pretty large escalation, don't you think? 
But it shows the deceit in men's heart that we eventually escalate to hatred towards someone with a differing opinion, with a differing mission, with maybe a different passion. A doing away with, even if murder isn't what we specifically want, is where many people tend to run towards when someone has a differing view that conflicts with us. And Jesus is pointing out what the apostles will deal with in the future bringing the completion fulfillment of the Old Testament as the message of the gospel, these apostles were going to deal with persecution that we don't even grasp. Verse 3, they will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. Jesus sounds kind of judgy here, doesn't he? Well, he's the judge, so he gets to be. And the anger and hostility against these representatives of God was and continues to be a judgment on their actions and motives that they do not know God the Father or God the Son, because they do not have God the Spirit. I can't imagine a bigger bummer than to assume you were doing something for God, to spend a bunch of time and effort and energy to just find out you were actually attempting to stop what God was doing. But for the religious… The legalist, and let me go as far to say the fundamentalist, this becomes an actual judgment against them. Because they don't look to the gospel first, but their own self-righteousness as means in which they judge everyone else by. So if they assume, or they assume that if you're not zealous, then you're not indwelled by the Spirit. If you're not condemning, then you are soft. If you are not sinless, then you are not holy. But the gospel begs to differ, church. Your right standing and your holiness are not evidenced by your ability to sin less. It is evidenced by your belief in Jesus and that Jesus is enough. Can somebody testify? Verse 4, Jesus says, I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. Jesus warns these believers, these disciples, these future apostles, and as we said a few weeks ago, warnings in scriptures, warnings for, for the believer in Scripture is to remind us of the narrow road that we ought to be walking. Verse 5, but now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. I almost assume, based on the verbiage that's being used here by Jesus, that Jesus says these things to show to the disciples that they maybe don't hear the warnings because they're missing the forest for the trees. They're so worried about being left alone. They haven't heard that Jesus is going to send a spirit to help them, to walk with them, to indwell them and guide them. They might hear what Jesus says, but they're not listening. And as a teacher of the Bible… I can pray, I can study, I can write sermons, I can communicate those sermons to the best of my ability with the Holy Spirit guiding me to hopefully interpret the passages truthfully and consistently all through the lens of the gospel, but I cannot make you listen and understand what the passage means and implies. I just can't do that. That is the work of the Spirit of God. So if you go, Tim, that was a good sermon, give praise to God because He's the one who made it so you could understand. And, 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 and maybe I can influence you and motivate you to do something differently until about the parking lot. And then you get in your car and you drive away, and then there's a great chance that most of, if not all of what you've heard and were persuaded by has been forgotten or ignored. But the Spirit 
He can awaken something in us to lead us to obey. He can remind us of the words of God found in the book that He wrote when we want to do our own thing. And so when we meet on Sunday, we don't come to have a pep talk. This isn't a TED talk. This is a sucky TED talk. This isn't a rock concert, even though Eugene rocks. This is the very words of God being spoken with the hope and expectation that God can and may do something in us to apply the very words of God, to exercise, to obey Him. And when you do, guess what? Life change, transformation, Christ-likeness can take place. That seems worth it to me, don't you think? But don't think that that happens without your effort. I know Kung Fu. That's not how this works. Your willingness to obey, there has to be some. Without your responsibility being exercised, no growth takes place. Maturity is the goal of the believer, and that doesn't happen by us doing nothing. We must repent when convicted. I, I, I was studying with some guys this week, and we're, we started the book of James, and James is part of the group, so I think that's fun. But as we're studying the book of James, I was reminded that every time I open Scripture, every time I read the very words of God, they tend to point me to some place where I need to repent. And, and I'm the pastor, and yet I need to repent. And so my guess is that you do too also, but often we read the Scriptures and go, well, he's not talking about me. Stop it. I'm a preacher. I'm not anyone's Holy Spirit. I can listen. I can care and point you to what God says. But other than that, I have no capability on my own to do anything that grows you or shapes you. Church, my fear for the people who claim they are God's possession is that we look more like those who are angered by what God says and represents than actually bow down and obey what He says. Verse 7, Jesus gets excited, but very truly I tell you, it is good for you that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, the mediator, the comforter will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus, again, for the third time in two chapters, makes known that he will send his spirit. He will send the Holy Spirit, the advocate, the comforter, but only when Jesus leaves. He will not stay and then have the spirit show up at the same time. He wanted the disciples to not be carnal. He wanted them to not live without faith. How hard is it to trust Jesus when He's right there? But He would send the Spirit. And even though the Son would not be before their very eyes, the Spirit would continue to point them to the Son. Verse 8, when He comes, the Spirit, He will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment about sin because people do not believe in Me, Jesus says. When the Spirit comes, He will prove, He will make known. People will see the truth about their sin, that they are wrong about their sin because simply, let's get really practical, because they don't believe in Jesus. Man, I think the world is so bent out of shape about the reality that believing in Jesus is actually a big deal. The bad news is really bad, but the good news is really good. And I think most of us tend to focus on the actions and an itemized checklist of do's and don'ts as our sin. Have you sinned this week? Testify. Have you, you don't have to tell me what it was, but just acknowledge that you sinned this week. But sin is not just what you do or don't do. Sin is a heart condition to not believe Jesus at His Word. That's what sin is. And so if you were like, well, I don't know if I sinned this week. Yes, you did. 
So don't attempt to do everything right. Your pastor just said, don't try to do everything right. Yep. Or don't try to do nothing wrong. Focus your attention and your devotion and your affection on Jesus Christ. Don't feel as if making Him first in your day makes you holy. Set your minds on things above and make Jesus central to everything you do. So if you work on cars, Jesus can be at the center. If you're in class, Jesus can be at the center. If you work at Google, Jesus can be at the center. If you work at Apple, but I'm not supposed to say that, Jesus can be at the center of your life. Why? Because He's the one who's given you breath, and you get to glorify Him. So when we focus on Jesus, we stop treating sin like a mistake, and we begin to see sin as the antithesis of following Jesus. I don't want to squelch the Spirit. I don't want to get off track from following the Lord, but let's be real, I do. And once again, I sin, and so grace must increase for me, but God in His mercy and grace continues to extend opportunity for me to repent. Here's what repent means. It means you change direction. It means you're walking this way, you're doing whatever you want, and then all of a sudden you change direction, and you go, you know what, Lord, I'm going to centralize my life on you again. But in His mercy and His grace, He continues to extend opportunities for me to repent and turn back and trust Him even more. It's God's kindness, the Bible says, that leads us to repentance. And we shouldn't take that for granted while also realizing that God knows exactly what we need in order to be matured. Did anyone have a hard week this week? Can you raise your hand and testify? Come on. Guess what? God can use that to mature you. Sorry. But not if we complain and whine and take the entire week and say, I can't believe the Lord left me. He didn't leave you. He's just giving you another opportunity to grow. And not only that, you might have even prayed for that scenario. Oh, Lord, I, I pray that you'd help me with patience. Don't pray that prayer. Five kids. Used to be four. I love you, Reagan. See, we as American Christians do not have a knowledge problem. We have a belief deficiency. And our ultimate sin is to not trust Jesus Christ as Lord, to not believe in Him. And that's why John writes the popular passage in Scripture, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever in bold believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Belief in Jesus makes all the difference. In fact, this letter was written, John 20, 30, and 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. I just realized I sound like John Piper. I'm sorry. Not as nasally. Why is belief so important? Because what you believe dictates how you behave what you value most, what is most prominent in your life. And if there is one thing that deserves your belief and devotion, it's a God who sent His Son to be the ransom for your sin. But if you do not believe that, you do not benefit from it either. So what is it about believing in Jesus that's so important? Let me ask it another way. What does the Holy Spirit lead you to believe? 
Here's what he leads you to believe, that Jesus lived, that he died, that he rose again, not just that he existed, that Jesus' sacrifice paid your sin debt, that Jesus physically rose from the dead, which means that death does not have to have final say for those who believe in Jesus, that Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection were enough to justify you and make you righteous or have right standing before God. Matt Chandler, referenced by Karen Miller, <laughs> said it this way, it's not, just what, it's not just what God saved you from, it's what he saved you to, which is the redemptive work of Christ. We get to be a part of what he's doing. God saved you to be part of his family, and he saved you to be ambassadors for the king. But this belief in Jesus is where it all begins, and it continues, because belief in Jesus is not a one-time thing. If you were here a few weeks ago, Pastor Mike asked Kyle and Brad to stand here and kind of do the thing and be a doorway to point out that it is not a one-time thing. It is a daily dying to oneself and trusting God at his word every day. The gospel is not just the front door that you walk through. It is he, being Jesus, is the power source that we plug into Pastor Michael J. Miller. Verse 10, Jesus says that they were wrong about righteousness. Because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. The Spirit would come to open the eyes of many who would see their right standing, their righteousness before God in the person and work of Jesus, not their self-righteousness or their obedience to the law. And since Jesus is going back to the, fear, spirit, uh, the Father, I get confused in the Trinity sometimes too. Jesus is going back to the Father. The Spirit has come to testify to this truth to those whom He would open the eyes of and that he would come to show them that they were wrong about judgment because the enemy, Satan, has already been condemned by Christ's work on the cross and resurrection from the dead. Verse 12, Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. Oh, uh, yeah, I'd say so. This God-man that they had walked with for a few years was now saying that he was going to go away and that they would be persecuted and even killed for their devotion. When Jesus went to the cross, I know these men forgot these words. Because you guys know, like we're going to read it in a few months, but I'm sure you've read the story of Jesus going to the cross, and what did the disciples do? They went fishing. They ran away. They were worried. They were trying to protect themselves, but Jesus knew that the Spirit of God, His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, would come and change these once skittish and timid men into bold proclaimers of the best news ever. What changed? Jesus rose and the Spirit came. That's what changed. Verse 13, but when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He, just real quick, um, I'm, I'm running at 9,000 RPM the rest of the sermon, so just get ready. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears and He will tell you what is yet to come. This verse this verse that for some becomes the spiritual junk drawer of attempting to interpret Scripture whatever, however it, we want it to be interpreted, this is told to the apostles, the men who would write the New Testament, the right side of your Bible, once they were indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. These men would be martyred for proclaiming what they physically saw, that Jesus rose from the dead. We are not apostles. Can you say that back to me? 
Okay, you've said it. Anyone who says that they are an apostle, ask them what type of birthmarks Jesus had. Because the apostles saw Jesus alive after he died. And we don't do that. We didn't see him. He doesn't show up in our grilled cheese. He didn't show up in the grilled cheese. That's from the 80s. Never mind. And Jesus says that the Spirit will tell you what is yet to come. And the Apostle John, the one who's writing this letter, he writes John. He writes 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation. And he got a revelation from God about the end of time. And you and I, we don't do that. And even if we did, even if we thought we knew the future and that it came from God, it would not be stapled at the end of our Bibles. We don't write Scripture. The Holy Spirit already did. And He used those that God chose by the eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection. Why? Because if the resurrection took place, we ought to have eyewitnesses to this event, don't you think? I don't want to hear about the resurrection from your cousin's, girlfriend's, hairstylist, neighbor. I don't want that to be the first one to say, hey, this happened, to tell me that Jesus rose from the dead. I want to hear it from someone who was there. If it really happened, it better have changed that person's life. It's not like Jesus' resurrection comes up in casual conversation. Hey, uh, bro, uh, Cephas, you know on Sunday morning? Yeah, I was walking along, and, and Jesus, who had died on Friday, he was walking around. Oh, cool. You want to play Smash Bros? No, that's not what happened. The book of Acts is not the casual conversations of the apostles. It is the actions of the apostles who saw Jesus alive after he died, and guess what? They could not shut up about it. Hallelujah for us. So don't take the authority that the Son gave to the apostles and attempt to wield it as your own. That will take you to places that God never intended you to go and can cause really awful things to happen within a church. If we've trusted Jesus Christ as our sole means of justification before God, then He promises the Holy Spirit to you as He did the apostles. So for the apostles, the Spirit coming, leading them into all truth, was to write Scripture it was to bring to remembrance what Jesus had said and what He did, and the Holy Spirit guided the hand of those who penned the letters that eventually became what we know as the New Testament. Don't believe me? Let's see what the Bible says. Ephesians 2, 19. Consequently, Paul says, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, Ephesians, but fellow Christians with God's people and also members of His household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, prophets being Old Testament, apostles being New Testament, with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. Peter then writes to the church and says, dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through the apostles. He's talking about how Scripture was put together and why we obey what God said through the prophets and the apostles, the people who saw Jesus alive after He died and Jesus chose to go and extend the gospel throughout the world. So for the apostles, that means that Jesus was letting them in on something that I actually highly think they understood at the time, especially before Jesus' resurrection, but that the Spirit would bring to mind and point out all of what would be needed to complete Scripture so that those of us who would come after, that's you and I, that we would have life, the life, the death, the resurrection, and it would be documented in this book 
with the after effects of the apostles and the beginning of the early church all the way to the end of the book and at the end of time. And if you haven't gotten there yet, I'm going to spoil it for you. Jesus wins. So for the apostles, this guiding into all truth is the cataloging and bringing to remembrance what Jesus had said and done while also guiding them to write letters inspired by the Spirit of God that would eventually become Scripture. Okay, that was the apostles, and we are not apostles. So how does this apply to us? Disciples, because if you claim you follow Jesus, you claim to be a disciple, which means a disciplined pupil of the king. Well, as we said last week, when there's a promise in Scripture, it's not really a promise, it's a fact because God always comes through. So what facts come from this statement that God will lead the disciples who would become apostles in, in, uh, into all truth? What does it mean that he's sending the spirit of truth for you and I who are not apostles? Here's a few things I know. Number one, the Holy Spirit is sent by God to people who follow him. How that takes place, we're not going to get into that because I don't totally understand it. Was the chicken or the egg, the Holy Spirit or the what? I don't know. The Holy Spirit is sent by God to people who follow Him, so follow Jesus and then worry about it. Number two, the Spirit leads and guides into truth. What truth? His truth. Not what we feel or misinterpret in other places of Scripture, but what He said in context in which He said it to build up His church and His people. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 through 17, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Number three, the Spirit speaks in relationship with the Father and the Son. That means that all that is written, all that you have in your hand from the original writings of the apostles and prophets, stands as what God decided that we need to know to be profitable, to be useful for teaching and correcting and training in righteousness. And all the questions you may have about God can be answered in Scripture if this is the complete Word of God. So I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, but Tim, what about aliens? I've been asked this. I've been asked this at this church and every other church I've been at. Apparently, if aliens were a big deal to God, he'd include them. Please turn with me to second ET. It's not there. So what does that tell us? That you should love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and that Jesus lived, died, rose again, and is exalted and lifted up to the right hand of the Father. And one day when we least expect it, he's coming back on a white horse with a sword, and it's going to be epic. There is a lot more in the Word of God, like how a church should be governed and how believers in Jesus should act. But what I just said was biblical, and God chose to include it. Why? So you could know Him and be conformed more into His image. And we are not apostles. We don't speak for God, but we can open up what is written. We can talk about it in the context in which it was written so that men, women, and children can know that God loves them. God sent Jesus to save them, that Jesus willingly died for them, and Jesus victoriously rose from the dead. No resurrection, no forgiveness. Have you ever thought about that? 
No resurrection, no forgiveness. And this is why we clap and applaud and get excited when we talk about the resurrection because the resurrection confirms that Jesus was not some weird dude with a Messiah complex who crazily died on a cross, but he was the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha and Omega, and because of that, we get to testify. Can I get a witness? But not just in here, when we walk out those doors. The Lord asks, can he get a witness? That I've indwelled with my spirit to testify to the reality that I'm alive and I'm working. Verse 14, he will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. Let me say it again. He, being the spirit, will glorify me, being Jesus, because it is from me, Jesus, that he, the spirit, will receive what he, the spirit, will make known to you. The name of this sermon is The Spirit Points to the Son, Part 2. Last week, we pointed out from the passage before this one that the Spirit's business is to exalt and magnify Jesus. The Spirit doesn't want credit. He wants you to see Jesus for who He is, which is King and Lord. So Jesus says that the Spirit in verse 14 will glorify Him because it is from Jesus where the Spirit will receive and make known to whom? Us. Can you see what an encouragement this is? That God would first speak to the apostles and make known the truth of God's Word so that the New Testament could be written so that we could know Jesus even better? Do you see what an encouragement this might be to the apostles, these bad news bears disciples, that even though Jesus is going away, even though they will face impossibly difficult trials, God does not leave them. In fact, He does more than just walk alongside them. He's about to indwell them with the Holy Spirit. Church, the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, Romans 8, 11, the same Spirit who hovered over the waters at creation, Genesis 1, 2, the same Spirit who descended on Jesus at His baptism, Matthew 3, 16, the exact same Spirit that cut the hearts of thousands at Pentecost to ask, how can I be saved, Acts 2, 37, that same Spirit has taken residence in you if you've committed your life to Jesus. With all your cracked foundation, with all your single-paned windows, all your brown and yellow grass out front, but the Spirit of God resides in you. The author of the Bible, the Spirit of the Lord, the Comforter, the Creator, the Mediator resides in you to lead you into all truth of His Word so He, so he can build up His church. He can build up you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Please, church, don't take this for granted. Do not sit on your hands if the Spirit lives in you, because the Spirit lives in you to make much of Jesus first, and then to equip you to share with others how beautiful and amazing Jesus is to those around you. Verse 15, all that belongs to the Father, Jesus says, is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what He will make known to you. Now, if Jesus is in a room of Pharisees when he says this, he would probably be stoned. Because what he just said to the disciples who trust him is another place where Jesus says that he and the Father are equal, that he and the Father are one, that everything that is the Father's is his. Jesus says that God and three persons work together to make known that you and I can be included in his family through the proclaiming of the kingdom of God, making sense to us. And then God, through His Spirit, drawing you to Himself 
and then through the same Spirit giving you the boldness and bringing back to mind the truth of His Word to share with others. So church, did God move this week? I'm not just saying, did He move because you had a wonderful week or you won the lottery or something. Did God move even through your trials? Was God closer to you because of some difficulty? Was God more evident because of something you realized about yourself? Is your relationship with God stale? Well, I'd ask you, did you talk about Him this week with anybody? You want your life to be changed real quick? Bring up Jesus in a conversation. Go into Pete's and go, hey, nice to meet you, and then wait for someone to sneeze and say, oh, God bless you. So, speaking of God, let's go. Let's talk about Jesus with others. Let's be willing to bring up the reality that God changed us. I, was, I, was, I love picking up my son from his elementary school because he likes to go to the park, and my son comes alive when he's playing tag with his friends at the park. And I got to run into uh, this, this dad of one of Boston's uh, friends, and we were talking, and he's into MMA type stuff, and I'm listening, I'm like, wow, and he's showing me videos, and I'm like, whoa, uh, okay, and uh, I mean, it's pretty cool, but, and so I'm watching it, and he's like, so how was your weekend? And I was like, you know what, it was really good. I heard a really great sermon, I didn't tell him I preached it. And I was reminded that the Spirit points to the Son. And then he got up and ran away from me. No, that's not what happened. We continued to talk. And he didn't really bite. We didn't continue to engage in all the spiritual conversations. And I didn't baptize him in the fountain over by Pete's. There was none of that. <laughs> but I got to share about my Savior, and it excited me. And I hope that just reminding you that, you know what, God didn't give you the Spirit so you'd sit on your hands and do nothing, but He gave you the Spirit so you would grow to look more like Jesus and you'd share with others how beautiful He is. I hope that you'd know that there are opportunities all around you if we'd be willing to share with others what a big deal it is that the Spirit indwells us because Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for who You are. I thank you that you sent your spirit so eyes could be opened to the truth of the gospel. Lord, I thank you for Jesus who did for me what I couldn't do for myself and I stand here forgiven not because I did anything right but because you rose and for some reason I believe that, God, and I don't think I did that. I think you did. And so for the men and women and children in this room today that are hearing my voice, for those who hear it on live stream later or on YouTube, God, I pray that you would encourage them, that you'd remind them of how beautiful it is to know you, God, that you moved heaven and earth and allowed your son to die on a cross so that we could have life, that you physically rose from the dead, and it is on that fact, it is on that truth that I base my life, and I wish that many of us would base our lives on the reality that you are alive, and because of that, when I talk to you, I'm not talking to an empty entity, but I'm talking to a living God. Lord, you don't need me to preach to you but you've given me your word to preach to others. And so I pray, God, through the work of your spirit that it would move us to action, that we wouldn't just hear it and forget it, but that we'd put into practice what you're teaching us, God, and that we'd love you more because of it. Like I said, there's nothing I can do, God, to transform a soul. They'll forget everything I said by the time they're on Winchester. 
but Lord, you can change lives and hearts and transform people to look more like your son. And so God, I implore you and I beg you to do that. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.